We are checking in again with State Representative Tacky Chan of Quincy for our Tacky Talk podcast. How are you today, Tacky? Hey, good to see you, Joe. Uh, happy to see you on School Vacation Week. Yeah, that's right. School Vacation Week. It's um, Ash Wednesday today. It's the start of Lent for folks who, who observe that. Just coming off the big Winterfest celebration here in Quincy. So lots going on. Yeah, and uh, it's nice to have a bit of a slow week, actually, uh, with school vacation week, not just necessarily at the state house, but also around the city in many ways, as people take advantage of a chance to try to get it with the family, uh, whether it be on a week's trip or a day trip. And it's even a vacation at the state house, because I, I know that the Healy administration is on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit unusual, actually. I think it's going to take a little bit for them to adjust. As Deval Patrick, uh, infamous uh, idea that he had, like paid leave and stuff, that doesn't exist if you're uh, elected official, folks. There is no paid leave. There is no unpaid leave. There's no uh, Family uh, Medical Leave Act benefit. There's no conventional vacation or sick days and personal days and so forth. People often ask me about you know, do you get the week off? I'm like, not really, because uh, there's no uh, vacation accrual. On the flip side, we do have a lot of flexibility in our own schedules, as many people are aware. Uh, but that flexibility kind of becomes on demand with folks who want my attention, whether it be uh, at an event or uh, at a meeting, uh, such as a Zoom meeting or in-person meeting these days. Um, and also it gives me a chance to catch up on things like paperwork. Uh, when I'm at an event, I don't get to read paper uh, that I need to read uh, or PDFs now on things that are going on the state. I was going to committee and whatnot. And I'm very thankful for my staff who keeps me updated on current events, uh, things they see on state house news, as well as the major papers. But at the same time, you know, when I'm watching the news, because people are aware now, I do like my 6 p.m. news when I can watch it on Channel 5. You know, I do send clips to the staff via text. Hey, did you guys see this? So, you know, it's a world of text messaging and ability to convey information. Uh, that we see in the media to each other. So, um, yeah, I think the administration is going to have to adjust a bit because uh, uh, they don't uh, have a conventional vacation or vacation time. Yeah, a little different in the executive branch. um, But uh, this week, uh, Secretary Galvin's the acting governor, right? Yeah, Secretary Galvin's been the acting governor of the state for, what, 30 years now? (laughs) (laughs) At least. (laughs) So for those who aren't aware, it's the governor, uh, then the lieutenant governor is the pecking order, and the secretary of state is the acting governor when the lieutenant governor is not available. And uh, the acting governor goes into place uh, any time the governor leaves the Commonwealth. So the if the governor sets foot outside the state of Massachusetts, the lieutenant governor becomes acting governor. If she's available, then obviously Galvin becomes acting governor and the secretary, the secretary of state. So it's, it's interesting. You have to be deemed incapacitated uh, but the most common one is that you are physically outside of Massachusetts. Interesting. So any uh, movement on committee assignments yet? Well, we got committee assignments in the House uh, last uh, Thursday. The S- Senate made their appointments on Wednesday. The Republican caucus in the House made theirs on Wednesday as well. Uh, and the Senate Republican caucus, I'm not sure what's going on with them just yet. The problem with the Senate Republican caucus is that there's only three senators and 20 or 30 or so committees. The Senate's House Senate structure is a little bit different regarding uh, standing committees. So uh, imagine being the House Republican Party, three members and some 30 plus committees you got to figure out um, to appoint your three, your total three Republican members. So they've been a little bit slower. Um on, on those appointments, but uh, I'm happy to say I'm back as uh, the Joint Committee on Professional, I'm sorry, Joint Committee Consumer Protection, Professional Licensure Chair. This will be my, um, I think technically my fourth term. It's a little weird because I came in a midterm in 2017. So 17, 19, 21, now 23. So yeah, technically it's beginning my fourth term on this committee. Um, and uh, no, Pretty much almost everything stayed the same. You know, uh, Aaron Merkowitz, a good friend for the North End, is still ways a mean share. The big seat that I was looking at is the uh, majority leader seat. Uh, Michael uh, Moran from Brighton is now the majority leader. Uh, Kate Hogan, uh, who uh, was speaker, uh, speaker pro tem, remains speaker pro tem, did not get uh, into the majority leader spot. And then we have a couple of folks that moved into uh, leadership positions, which is uh, Alish Peich, who was education chair, and Daniel Gregoire, who was the bonding and capital assets chair. 
um, and they move into the part of the second leaders as well as the floor leaders positions. Um, and then the uh, other committees that have absent folks, you know, have some uh, new uh, first time uh, chairs, including my good friend, Minnie Down from Amherst, who's now the natural, uh, I'm sorry, he's, she's the tourism chair. It's a starting chair for many uh, new members. And uh, one of my friends, Paul Schmidt from Westport is now the um, chair of agriculture, which is kind of funny because he's the chair of uh, natural resources and agriculture when it was a combined committee. We split those committees in half this year and uh, he's come full circle. <laughs> so it is kind of how funny some things work with certain folks regarding committee assignments. And of course, Bruce Ayers is still the vice chair of financial services. Jamie Murphy from Weymouth is the chair uh, of financial services. So we have the powerful duo there regarding the banking and insurance industries on the South Shore and Bill Driscoll, um, the rep from Milton continues to be uh, emergency prep uh, chair. It was the COVID-19 chair, but since COVID-19 has moved to a whole different part of our lives, she's now, he's now in charge of the emergency preparation committee. Um, and then uh, uh, Mark Cusack continues to be revenue chair. And we're aware that there's you no know, taxation issues that will be bringing forward um, this cycle that that is uh, going to probably happen, hopefully in the first half of the session here. So there's, you know, continued, continued conversation from the tax package uh, that we worked on last time on, you know, deductions on um, your uh, rent deductions, you know, increasing uh, child care tax credits, um, you know, many types of deductions and credits that help working families. So that conversation is still going on. And then Mark Cusack and Braintree is going to lead that. And of course, you had, I was just talking about John Keeler earlier. You know, he's now a chair of election laws. Uh, pretty much straightforward what that sounds like. But there's also a campaign finance law that actually falls under that committee as well. So mm. John will have his hands full again as people will discuss reforms and changes to have our elections in campaign finance reflect the modern day. Any um, new members on your committee, Jackie? Yes, I uh, have uh, four brand new members. I have 11 House members and uh, six senators. Uh, that is a joint chair. Again, joint chair means that both House and Senate chair the committee together, and uh, we kind of have to come to some agreements at the committee level. We're going to move bills out, but I have uh, four brand new members who are also uh, newly elected members as well. So we have Kate Donahue, um, let's see if I get the names correct, Don Shad, um, Christopher Worrell, and uh, uh, Estella Reyes. Let's see if I can remember all those names. And you know, we welcome back some folks, including Mary Key from Worcester as my vice chair. And uh, on the South Shore, we have uh, John Moschino. Uh, so we may know John from the Cohasset, Hingham area. And uh, we welcome back again, um, David LeBeau from Worcester, um, Dan Cena, which I think is Lunenburg. I think he's, he's up in that zone. And then we welcome back our two Republican members, my old friend, Steve Howitt out of uh, Seekonk, we came in together, we're still together after all of these years. And uh, Joe McKenna from Webster uh, is the ranking uh, minority member. They've been with the committee. Well, Joe, uh, Steve's been with the committee since with me since the very beginning. So uh, it's a decade, over a decade plus now. Uh, and uh, Joe's been on the committee as long as I, uh, I've been around. So um, as chair. So that, that that's great. We have some people that are veterans and know how things work. And my co-chair is now um, John Cronin from, from I think it's Lunenburg also. Out of, it's outside of Fitchburg. Um, he's a second term, second term now, third term, third term senator uh, from that area. Um, so he's nowadays, given how fast rotation is, three terms makes you a veteran in the Senate, given the high turnover. Uh, used to be able to wait like eight terms, six before you're a veteran, but how things change and um you know look forward to uh, seeing him and he's going to be my fourth senate chair uh, in four terms uh mm. yeah i know it's it seems like every time i uh, get a good working relationship with a senate chair i have a new one mm. all right so lots of changes is is this pretty much following the timetable that you, that you thought it would no, it's going to be a, Van a Valentine's Day kiss, a Valentine's Day kiss. So it's going to be a St. Patrick's surprise. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was the week of St. Valentine's Day, or as the speaker like refers, bean pot week, uh, depending on <laughs> how you want to put it. Um, and uh, I, I do, uh, and I talked about this before on the podcast, but I don't envy the speakers. Uh, challenges are making decisions. You know, we uh, in the office, 
as a learning lesson, uh, you know, have the staff fill out their own charts for uh, leadership positions uh, as kind of an exercise to teach them about how to interwork in state house, you know, the different interpersonal dynamics, the working relationships. I mean, I think it's very important for staff to learn these things as I learned when I was a staffer many moons ago and uh, exercises like filling on a bracket, so to speak, is, is a fun way of learning this. And I did not win the bracket, I'm embarrassed to say. I took the <laughs> intermediate Gonzagas, as I like to put it. I went out on a limb a few too many times on what I thought would happen. Um, but I mean, there was a lot of vice chairman appointments that the speaker had to fill. Um, people tend to underrate those, but you still have to fill those positions. So technically, there are leadership positions, technically speaking. So your chair, vice chair is a leadership position. And secondly, uh, you know, he had to move some talent around and also the consideration of seniority. And uh, as I kind of alluded to do with the Senate, the House is actually in a very similar position. I mean, probably 75% of the people I came in with in 2011 aren't there anymore. Wow. So seniority has to be as part of the consideration speaker as well as talent ability and um, you know the commitment to working in the house. I mean, you got to show some work ethic, otherwise you ain't going to get responsibility. It ain't that difficult. So I know people always look at this job as you know, predominantly constituent services, which is true. And obviously, you know, my they talk about me attending events and such a lot. Um, and of course, you know, the idea is that you also have to do briefings and meetings in the state house, not just uh, you know going around the district, you know visiting people at a time. And then you got to show some commitment. You're going to do work on public policy and uh, you're able to kind of work on your own, think on your own and be able to negotiate with the Senate and work with your colleagues to try to, you know, get together on things that we can move forward to. And also, you know, folks got to learn how to say no. Hmm. And uh, how do you do it in a polite and professional manner uh, to a colleague that's going to be frankly mad at you? So... (laughs) That's also part of the or job. strongly disagree, at least. <laughs> no, I had mad people at me. It's <laughs> like, uh, I don't cut corners on that. But yeah, many strongly disagree. But I had a few mad ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the job. And uh, people tend to not understand that about the dynamics in my building is that I'm working with a lot of dynamics in the House, the Senate, the governor, you know, the treasurer, secretary of state, the attorney general's office, auditor's office. And I got a lot of dynamics, obviously, politically at home you know, interacting with the city government, but also interacting with my own constituencies. And, you know, we all know, you know, I'm a Democrat, so you got changes in the Democratic State Committee. Steve Kerrigan will be the next State Democratic Committee Chair. Uh, Gus Bregford will uh, step down at some point in March, I believe. You know, the Democratic State Committee is going to start to reflect uh, the control under uh, Governor Healy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's there's all these other moving parts around me uh, that... uh, People don't always really appreciate. And as we start a new term, again, building relationships, new governor, new relationships, you know, we expect not everything to be perfect. There's always going to be rockiness to it. But, you know, if you're a professional and you're understanding uh, in this job, you know, you work your way through it. And, uh, you know, there's always going to be disagreements and you have opinions, but how you express them and how you engage folks is very important uh, to creating a respectful uh, relationship and hopefully relationship that uh, the various people respect you as much as you respect them. Yeah. Has, um, has the governor finished uh, filling out her cabinet yet? Do you know, I know there've been a couple of recent appointments. I think the uh, department of uh, environmental resources or energy resources, something of that matter. Yeah. They've pretty much finished out the assignments. There is a little bit quirkiness because of the fact that the governor still needs to submit a reorganization plan. You know, we are aware that she's trying to divide up some, uh, Secretariats and smaller secretariats also with commissions left and right uh, to reflect her changes. We are not seeing an actual plan yet. Uh, I hope that she submits a plan sometime before we start the budget process because the budget needs to reflect the governor's structure. Uh, but as far as appointments are concerned on the secretarial level, she's just about done. I mean, John Santiago, our colleague from Boston, who uh, just started his third term and didn't really get, he's not even going to finish his third term. I will be the Secretary of, of Veterans Affairs. Um, also brought my attention that our good friend uh, Ed Coppinger from West Roxbury is going to be moving on to greener pastures as well. Um, that's actually reflected in the committee assignment list where neither one were assigned to committees, which is, you know, which is kind of the clue they're not going to be here much longer. Um, and obviously I wish them well and, and uh, you know, better things going on. I mean, Ed Coppinger came with me in 2011. So right now the governor's challenge would be filling out the undersecretaries, the commissioners, the deputy commissioners, and so forth. And uh, the secretariats uh, are hitting the ground running. The budget's coming up quick. 
and uh, Ways and Means will hold hearings and they're going to start to question secretariats. It doesn't matter. You've only been there for weeks. Ways and Means is going to ask you questions in the hearing and you're going to have to answer. So they got to maintain some kind of mixture of the old guard and new guard, so to speak, where they're bringing new people, but they have to keep some old folks around because, you know, the new folks coming in have no idea what's going on. Right. And, uh, it's a balancing act. And hopefully um, every secretary, as well as the governor's governor's staff, uh, recognizes that and uh, they kind of, you know, balance out how this works. Um, you know, I get dribs and grabs from people in administration because, you know, I know people that work in administration. They're not committees yeah. or commissioners. They're, you know, tend to be on the lower end of the food chain. But, I mean, news does filter around and hopefully the administration is aware that uh, there are no secrets in government. No, that's the nature of government. It's it's, <laughs> it's public. <laughs> somebody will say somebody to somebody. And next thing you know, it gets to my ear. Yeah. Um, she can, the governor can always amend budgets going forward, though, can she not? Well, she can't amend about our approval. Again, yeah. the appropriation yeah. power is in the legislature starting in the House. So if she decides that she wants to do a uh, reorganization plan, you know, after the budget's over, uh, you know, we always can amend the budget to reflect the changing line items and move stuff around. That being said, uh, you know, the budget process does take you some time. And uh, if she decides to reorg plan in the midst of conference committee, for example, the House had a conference committee budget can do some technical corrections, moving line items around to reflect the government that she wants to build in the structure. Right. So it's it's not dire, uh, yep. but, you know, the chairs of ways and means as well as the chair, uh, the committee members of ways and means will have questions regarding, you know, operational issues. And some of these questions will be uh, from the Baker administration. Ah, Okay that the healing administration has to pick up the ball on. Right. Uh, you don't start with a clean slate, folks. You actually have to uh, pick up what's left from your predecessor and uh, continue, discontinue, or suspend whatever is going on as you're trying to figure it out. But the legislature, uh, as uh, you know, you're aware, you know, are, is contiguous, meaning that you know, members are here. I know there's enormous turnover. But I mean, you know, the chair ways means is still the chair ways means both branches. Mike Rodericks in the Senate, and Aaron Merkowitz in the House. I mean, they mm. have changed over uh, in many years uh, now, as well as the uh, various committee members in seniority. If you look at the seniority list of uh, ways and means members, they tend to be the most uh, senior members uh, in the uh, House and Senate. So, you know, it isn't like they're not remembering what prior uh, administrations going back as for the, in some cases the Paul Patrick, depending mm. on the member you know, uh, like, you know, important things that are important to them that, you know, they want answers out of Deval Patrick, they want answers out of Charlie Baker, they want answers out of Moore Healy. So some of our senior members of the committee will, will, you know, won't let go. We'll we'll continue to make those inquiries. You know, the Senate, I think, did they not just remove term limits for the the leadership of the Senate? Yeah, this is a little bit interesting. Uh, The uh, people have this misconception that, you know, the uh, term limits for a speaker and Senate president was a time immemorial rule. It is not. I mean, uh, sadly, I've been around long enough that the uh, term limits for uh, Senate president came around with Thomas Birmingham's ascension to Senate president, Tom, who passed away, uh, I think, like three weeks ago, sadly, at age 70. But um, but yeah, I mean, because that was a response to Bill Bulger's very long reign uh, as Senate president, I think it was like 14 plus years. Mm. Uh, and uh, part of the Senate reform with Tom Birmingham become president was to work out a deal to be president, included term limits. Um, and that continued on uh, because uh, 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 Robert Travellini, Bob Travellini, uh, was only three years. Terry Murray did the full eight years. Um, you had Stan Rosenberg, uh, and it was a blink of an eye, barely three. And then you had Harry Chandler, Senate president, for barely six months. And then you had uh, uh, Karen Spilka. But, I mean, Karen Spilka became Senate president, I believe, um, in the summer of 2017, with like five days less left in the session, mm-hmm. and uh, she got her first full term uh, on. Um, let's see here, uh, 2000. It was actually 2018 was the first was a, was the midterm shift. So 2018, so her first full term 2019. So for eight years from 2019 would be 2027. Right. So today's 2023. It's a long time to 2027. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, removing the term limits this far out, I know the press is making a lot of, you know, my hay about it, but it isn't like it was just at the like very last term and you wanted more time, right? You know, this, the House did a similar procedure uh, with, um, you know, the Kavarian um, speakership 
you know, the Charlie Speaker, Charlie uh, Flaherty Speakership, because Tom McGee was there for 10 years, they initiate term limits. And even then, the only two that actually made it through it all was, was uh, Tom Finneran, who did uh, 10, because he removed term limits uh, when he was there. Uh, and then uh, Sal Macy reinstated term limits. And then uh, Bob Lulio took away term limits. <laughs> Uh, and the uh, speaker Mariano made very clear that he's not going to complete uh, any kind of term limit because he's not going to be here for a decade. Right. Um, speaker was. He said that going in, actually. Yeah. He was not shy of letting people know that he has no interest in being here 10 years later. Right. Um, so uh, does term limits work? Well, the term limits only work as much as the membership lets you stay in leadership. Mm-hmm. So even though people you know, talk about term limits, one, it's not time memorial. Two, it has not proven really to make any major changes in the place, mm-hmm. right? You know, Terry Murray left after eight years, but she was kind of tired after eight years to begin with. And uh, you and noted that, you know, Senate presidents uh, as short as six months um, and some as long in the, in the House uh, as much as 10 plus years. I mean, there is no determination of people's... Uh, career in leadership and, and also, you know, the next path after leadership uh, in the house, eventually we all leave and you got to do something else. Right. So there's, you know, there's that reality too. And, and uh, if the membership is not happy with you, the membership's going to do something about it. So the fact that you're able to remain a speaker as well as have a leadership team that's relatively intact uh, for a long period of time is a reflection of the ability to keep um, the members uh, satisfied and how the place is run. Yeah, some stability certainly is important um, in any kind of organization, really, in order to get things um, accomplished, you know, get things done. Well, look at Speaker McCarthy down in Congress. Just saying, folks. Yes, if you want to bring up national politics. Hey, um, interesting uh, surprise visit by the president uh, to Ukraine. Yeah, uh, unexpected. A first time a president's visit of a wartime situation where there was no U.S. presence, meaning there's no U.S. military base. There's no, you know, so-called green zone like you saw in Afghanistan. Um, you know, no, plenty no, of U.S. equipment, but no personnel. Right. Well, also no U.S. flyby. Um, no mm-hmm. U.S. aircraft uh, was flying over Ukraine at the time. I think partially it would tip off everybody if U.S. planes crossed the border. And also the you know whole, you know, Russians were like you cross into that zone. Bad things happen, which is kind of fun because the air doesn't belong to Russia, it belongs to Ukraine. But put that issue aside. Right. Um you know, yeah, this is a, a very big deal uh, because I think some of you have read the news, you know, is where there's no air transport really easily into Kiev. Uh, everything's on ground transport and there's a lot of vulnerability as you're trying try to get there in a secret train. And of course, you know, U.S. military presence needs to be there with the president to secure him and the senior staff. Uh, and uh, yeah, quite remarkable they was able to do that. And of course, you know, they denied it, denied it, denied it because it needs to be done in secret. Uh mm-hmm. Because you don't know who's going to want to take a shot at uh, any uh, U.S. Uh, president or any U.S. senior official. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Blinken and others, you know, that go to Ukraine, um, you know, it has been a secure matter uh, and uh, complete secrecy. Yeah, I, th- I think it was meant as a message of support, not only to the government, but to the people of Ukraine, too. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I know that he is the U.S. president and there's a lot of security associated with it, but there's always a you know, risk that a missile may fly through. Right. I mean, you know, you all seen that, you know, the same dummy warheads is dropping dead metal everywhere, uh, as well as explosives, both of them all over the place in Ukraine. And, you know, there is a you know, legit risk. I mean, the air siren went off where the president was there. People were watching that clip. Uh, but it also sends a message to people who claim that, you know, the U.S. still committed to uh to their cause and, you know, ensuring a, a free democracy uh, such as it is. I know there's a corruption issue. I know people are going to start sending hate messages about that. But, you know, the idea that people should have the ability to self-govern and make a determination of where the government should go, uh, you know, through a democratic method. And, uh, hey, it, you know, it's, yeah, I know it's a lot of security, but it's still a war zone. I mean, it right. takes a lot of guts to go into a war zone. Uh, and it, it only takes one Missile or bomb or right, right, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know spies as as uh, been reported multiple times. Ukraine has to keep an eye for spies and assassination opportunities against this, their president and their senior leadership. So I mean, they're constantly in heightened alert, nonstop for the past year. 
uh, and uh, you know the president, you know, being there is a signal of support, but also show that you know American uh, bravery is true and real to the uh, to the Ukrainian people and to the whole world. Meanwhile, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin only got as far as Crimea, uh, you know, before Kherson fell, um, and uh, you know, Xi Jinping is heading into Russia, uh, I believe, in the next ten days. His foreign mm-hmm. ministers are out there to discuss, you know, continued relationship between China and Russia. Um, so, and, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin sent a very strong state message, uh, reiterating his uh, position regarding the crimes of Ukraine against Russia, which most of us don't believe. And uh, it doesn't make any sense, frankly. And his new commitment to do whatever it takes and how many lives it takes, to be honest, what he's trying to say is how many lives does it take for him to win this war? So the spring offensive will be coming up soon. Uh, the Russians already started their artillery and started making movement even before the warm weather's totally hit. And uh, you're all aware that, you know, a lot more munitions and now tanks are heading into Russia, uh, Ukraine. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of training involved uh, for the Ukrainians to learn different types of ordinances as uh, they prepare to make the big push. But uh, armor is now getting thin, even though the Russians lost a ton of armor. Uh, the Ukrainian armor, there ain't a whole lot of armor left. <laughs> Uh, it's an attrition. This is an attrition war. Uh, the Russians' entire strategy is now attrition. Uh, we can outlast you because we have more people and stuff. Right. And uh, we'll just whittle away your people and stuff because it's less here. So while you may kill more of us, you know, it's the, you're going to have diminishing returns. And this is this is what this war is really become. It's really a, a 19th century war. It's not even 20th century. It's it's really become a 19th century war of just plain up attrition. We'll just outlast you. You can kill as many of us as you want, but it won't matter because there's still more of us than you. Yeah, I mean, the only difference is obviously Russia is a nuclear power. And I think Putin just kind of stepped back from the last remaining restriction on on nuclear weapons. Well, there was never any restriction. I mean, all these treaties are wonderful, but you're going to do what you're going to do. Treaty or no treaty. I mean, there's no like offense. I mean, already sanctioned the country. They're going to get sanctioned again. I mean, their economy is a complete mess. Hence the importance of the conversation of the Chinese, whether or not the Chinese and Russians can you know, do some kind of synergy, like in the old Soviet bloc days. The difference now is that, well, during the Soviet bloc days, the Russians and the Eastern Europeans were the bulk of the economy and the Chinese were not. It's complete and total role reversal now, where you know the Soviet Union was the second biggest economy. Uh, it is, you know, the Russian Federation is far from the second biggest economy. And they're now uh, 11th and dropping like a rock. And uh, the, the Chinese are rising, uh, continue to be rising, second largest economy uh, and uh, the largest consumer economy in a planet by person. So, you know, it'd be interesting how the dynamic would work because uh, the Chinese don't need them. Right. Yeah, exactly. This it's, isn't it like is interesting. Yeah, because like the Soviet era, Soviet era, you know, uh, places like China, Cuba, North Korea, other communist countries needed the Soviet Union because they needed to be part of the trading bloc and they were very frankly, smaller and weak economies uh, and a social military. Uh, now is the opposite. Uh, China is the dominant economic power in the communist systems around the world. Uh, and uh, they are the dominant military. Uh, they're much better than uh, the Russian military in terms of arms and manpower. Uh, it's geography that makes it challenging. If you look at a map, you see the mountains, the deserts, the waterways. There's a lot of logistical issues on um going on a land war in Asia, much just, you know, Pacific war in Asia. Uh, we learned that in World War II as well. But it's, uh, it doesn't matter how modern you get or how the size of your army, there's all kinds of logistical challenges. So, and also to share a very large border, the largest border in China is Russia. They come right mm-hmm. now in the, you know, the Central Asian countries. So, you know, from a uh, pr- Russian standpoint, you know, security on those borders, uh, which has always continued to be in dispute because everyone disputes borders, doesn't matter where you're in the world. Um, you know, you got to make sure the Chinese don't decide to kind of like, hey, we're arguing about this piece of space. Let's just move on in. Well, you right. kind of distracted over there, right? And, uh, you know, the Chinese are very, very aware of their position on the planet and they're very aware of the position of the Russians. Uh, I do understand the foreign ministry does put out a lot of wolf diplomacy, a lot of rhetoric and, and so forth. But don't forget, they have to play the domestic audience. A lot of what they do is not necessarily directed at us. Uh, it's directed at their own people at home to reassure their people about their position in the world. Right, because that's the only message they get, so <laughs> they can control that, yeah. And frankly, it's the only message that the Chinese government cares about. Right, yeah. Right. It's like no different, we're no different from any other country either. Our, a lot of our messaging uh, is to uh, reassure the American public 
uh, agree or disagree. The only difference, you're right. The only difference is that we have a lot of media outlets and a lot of opinions and a lot of mediums for us to express different opinions in the matter. Well, the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party controls the media and there's only one medium uh, for people to get information. Yeah. Interestingly, um, Japan is taking note also and and getting concerned about their sovereignty. Well, absolutely. If you're an Asian Pacific country, you should be very concerned with your sovereignty on a couple of levels. One, obviously, in military, it's, it's pretty straightforward, but also shipping lanes. Shipping mm-hmm. lanes, you know, are still crucial. 40% of all goods come in through the South China Sea, uh, through the uh, Indian Ocean, um, through Singapore, Malaysia uh, area. Uh, they pass through the Strait of Taiwan, right into uh, the Sea of Japan or the Eastern Sea, depending which country you want to ask, which I, there's a whole different conversation on a different day why I said that. Uh, but I mean, it very much impacts Japan, Korea, um, as well as uh, the Taiwan situation. And you know, if the Chinese government decides to control the entire strait, well, they can basically demand anything you want out of you because you can't get your goods. And the Philippines, you know, renewing uh, for the first time in many years, their agreement, the U.S. military base, which is not the conventional base you're all thinking about, you know, we just built a giant military base on someone's island, you know, basically sharing their uh, six, a minimum of six uh, military bases with the U.S. government, sharing Philippine bases, um, you know, is a big deal. Uh, and having more than one staging location for the U.S. government uh, to uh, participate in joint exercise with the Filipino military, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ability to have uh, a greater presence in a larger geographic zone. So, yeah, the Japanese, you know, should be very concerned. They're the third biggest economy. Um, they're going to have their GDP reach a greater level in terms of spending on military equipment, really growth of GDP. And the Constitution, though, still doesn't allow them to leave the island uh, in terms of uh, support or, or self-defense. Uh, they can only remain on the island for self-defense pursuing the Constitution. That still continues to be a very big debate in Japan but where they should eliminate the clause to allow them to participate in UN peacekeeping missions, for example, to allow them to assist uh, US and other allies with military forces, because right now they can only send non-lethal aid uh, to um, any allied group, uh, and also to do uh, preemptive, meaning that, you know, if they're coming at you from the water, you know, you should probably meet them in the water before they get to your island. Right, yeah, I know that's a holdover from World War II, really. Yeah, the U.S. government, uh, as part of the uh, Treaty of uh, Japan uh, and then World War II, basically wrote their constitution. The U.S. government wrote the Japanese constitution, which is why their uh, government structure is, I wouldn't say identical to the U.S., but a lot lot of similarities. And one of the big provisions was that you cannot have a military leave your uh, territorial area. Yeah, um, they don't want... They don't want a repeat of, of what happened exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But no, you know, we're in a different world today. Right. And, you know, obviously you want to protect your sovereignty. And North Korea is still like sending missiles or whatever ballistics, you know, over Japan, um, which causes a lot of panic. And, you know, those of us that live here don't really understand, uh, you know, how much of the world really ha- are under threat of some kind of foreign attack. Uh, and uh, the continuous uh, panic and fear. If you live in South Korea, I know it's really part of life now, but you still have a neighbor that can shell you with World, World War I equipment. You don't need 21st century equipment to ruin a city. I mean, right. the North Koreans just bombard you of equipment from 100 years ago and still do massive damage. And the mm-hmm. Russians also prove that too. I mean, they're using Soviet area weapons and uh, to devastating effect. Uh, you don't need you know, smart missiles. So you can just drop stuff you know, into an urban area. Right. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but true. Um, back here at home, I guess a new policy on uh, asylum seekers going into a, or, or at least trying to go into effect, probably get challenged in Supreme Court, but surprising from the Biden administration. Yeah, the pandemic era regarding a no a due process for asylum seekers uh, returning to border. Uh, interesting. This is interesting because most people don't realize that once you come to U.S. territory, U.S. US United States, you are granted certain due process rights, but to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court did rule that people in the U- that come into the U.S. have some due process rights. One of them includes, you know, right to an immigration hearing mm-hmm. on whether or not you uh, have a legit case to stay or not stay. Under pandemic rules, there was no uh, hearing. You just get sent back over the other side. And uh, the Biden administration is trying to simplify uh, this due process by uh, allowing asylum seekers to use any embassy 
uh, not necessarily from their home country, uh, particularly talking about Central or South America, not Mexico. Uh, you know, talk about much further south. Um, right. People tend to think this is a Mexican issue. It's, it is, but kind of not. It's a little more nuanced than, than the media likes to make it. But I mean, particularly, you know, people, you know, fleeing war-torn areas or, well, gangster slash cartel areas, you know. Yeah, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, Ecuador, Yeah. Yeah, because the current requires you to go back to your country of origin and apply through your country of origin. The Biden administration would like to be able to have you apply anywhere in route uh, to the U.S. outside the country of origin, because maybe trying to get to uh, a U.S. diplomacy office, one, may not exist in a normal manner, um, right. because we're not there. <laughs> right. Right. And second, try to get there, you might die. So, <laughs> yeah, things we don't think about in the U.S., um, so this, this is kind of a, an interesting proposal. We'll see if it has any legs mm-hmm. and uh, like I said, end, uh, the end of the pandemic rules regarding, um, you know, automatic deportation, which the Biden administration held over from the Trump administration will end. And they're going to have to come up with some kind of a mechanism for orderly due process in the immigration courts, which are understaffed. Mm-hmm. Like everything in the U S is now understaffed, uh, not surprising, uh, immigration courts yeah. have always been understaffed and continue to be understaffed and Congress and, the administration needs to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. They have two years to do it. Yeah, they got to figure this out. I mean, um, that's one of the big problems is because, uh, you know, a lot of people come asking and uh, they, uh, the courts are filled up and uh, they got to figure what to do with them all. And uh, that's why, you know, having people apply outside the U.S. to the U.S. from anywhere in route um, may be uh, more orderly solution mm-hmm. and you know floods of people crossing the border and then you got to process them and then proceed to you know they're going to claim asylum and they're going to proceed to do process that way as opposed to using correct channels via the state department through ice then they can review the issue and you know be able to get you an answer mm-hmm. uh, in an orderly fashion that would it be faster or slower i can't say right um, yeah i can't say. i'm on board even in friendly countries like japan People seeking to have uh, permanent resident status, and it's a friendly country, you know, have been waiting like a decade. Mm. Wow. Uh, I know some folks that have been applying for years, they have family in the US, um, they've already permanent residents, some of them are citizens, and they want to come join them uh, and migrate to the US. And uh, and that's a friendly country, folks. Mm. Uh, mm. And uh, that ain't happening. So, yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, that's a, that'll be an election year issue, I'm sure. Um, hey, Jackie, do you know, um, with, the, with the ARPA funds, I know that counties were also given allocations. Does the state have any say in how those are, are distributed? Nope, county commissioners. Okay. Do you know, has it been distributed? No idea. Okay. I should call Joe Shea at some point, but it hasn't really been on my priority list to find out. Um, yeah. I don't know. You can okay. Has Pilati, he's in charge of like moving the money, signing, out. signing the checks. Yeah, <laughs> signing the checks. Of all the people who know if the money's moving, it's Mike Pilati, is the county treasurer. He has to sign all the checks, leaving the door anyway. So True. I'm sure that they could give you a more definitive answer. I mean, they're also in the same time frame too. I mean, like the state and the city. You know, we have, I believe, the end of the cycle, the end of this year, I think, or is it? I think it is this year. We have to move out all the money, at least allocated for for distribution. Um, and uh, some people that were using this money as a, a continuous program were going to have some problems uh, that as opposed to treating one-time money, you know, one-time project and you're out. Um, so we'll see uh, how actually, how we'll see really at a municipal level, uh, all municipalities, right. how they use their, how they've been using your money for the past uh, two years. And, uh, you know, when that money runs out, is it affecting a, a normal program or they've been actually using yeah. for one-time funds that are, uh, you know, I mean, I know you can use it for a lot of things. It's fairly flexible, but, you know, are they, uh, you know, prepare? I mean, again, I point to uh, city of Boston's uh, free bus rides, uh, which the city has been uh, reimbursing the MBTA on a couple of bus routes. That's opera money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that eventually is going to go away. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's it you know it's, it doesn't seem like a ton of money, and, and in this in size of the, the three billion dollar Boston budget, I think it's about three, I think it's over three billion. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I mean, it's like you got to find ten or twenty million dollars someplace inside their budget, and uh, those are 
uh, the listings that have seen municipal budgets, it's a lot tighter than people give it credit for. Um, mm-hmm. So it isn't like there's a lot of free cash floating around. And, uh, you know, places like Boston, other uh, locales are going to be facing some property tax challenges, uh, especially since uh, remote work still is a major part of people's lives or hybrid work uh, that impacts uh, small local businesses, particularly in places like downtown Boston that can't keep up because uh, there's no customers. And uh, eventually consumer spending will slow because it's already starting. Got a trillion dollar in credit card debt by consumers uh, from this past, last year. So imagine a trillion dollar debt by consumers. We're not talking about you know owning property. We're talking about you know, people just buying day-to-day stuff. Um, and uh, you know, redevelopment seems to be slowing down in Boston. They got rising interest rates, which the Federal Reserve, I would suspect at some point is going to make another announcement of continued hiking rates. So um, so yeah, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges for the state and municipalities uh, regarding um, you know the cha- continually changing economy and mm-hmm. uh, a lack of access to liquidity that uh, is affordable. Um, and it's going to impact a lot of plans regarding development uh, and also people's personal finances. Yeah, I read a story just this week. I think that the state has lost over 110,000 residents uh, in the past two years. Yeah, I mean, but it's not necessarily unusual. I mean, it's it's a the state's really bizarre, right? Uh, in how we operate, because well, one big part of it is that it's a huge student population, right? We, mm-hmm. we receive ninety to hundred thousand students a year. The U.S. Census, you know, we estimate at least the U.S. Census was short sixty thousand students who should have been here in the twenty twenty census. Yeah, um, that was a major concern uh, regarding uh, possibly losing congressional seat because students were physically not here. Uh, and there's a strong push in college campuses to make sure that you're counting Massachusetts, you're physically in Massachusetts by April 1st. Um, there is, uh, but I mean, one of the ways you can tell the impact of a migration is housing. Yes. Vacancies are still not readily available. I'm not seeing a whole lot of for sale signs. A few for sale signs I see in the eastern part of the state, you know, come up and down. It's still pretty quick uh, by, by any standard. And uh, the market is still tight. Uh, I think a lot of renters have moved out, but rent prices aren't going down either. At all, no. So this, so even though there's a uh, migration out, uh, the impact, biggest impact you see it in is in property. Mm-hmm. Property should be more available and rents should go down because the supply is out meeting demand. And uh, I read the Globe that has some great stories about families and not great stories in the sense that it's good for Massachusetts, but I mean, you know, legit everyday working people stories about the challenges of the cost of living in Massachusetts, especially in the greater Boston area. And, uh, and, and frankly, um, you know, the property prices, you know, are the markets out of control still, but also, you know, how renters are being squeezed because landlords know they can find somebody else. If landlords know they can't find anybody else, they will work with, they have to work with tenants. Right. right? Either, yeah, work with them or, or lower the rents, right? Yeah. I mean, this ain't complicated economics. Right. So I know people left, but, you know, there's also a lot of people retired. It'd be interesting if they break down the demographics or reasons of leaving. I know cost of living is a big one, but, you know, not surprising, you know, a lot of people also have second homes in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, particularly have, you know, some means. Uh, or you know, a second home in a warmer climate, and you're really become a part time part time resident. And I'm also convinced that if you're higher income and move to a lower tax or a warmer state, depending on your needs, you're not going to give up your property in Massachusetts. You're going to be more of a part time resident. Yeah, that's true. You'll keep it as a rental, perhaps. Yeah. Well, also, if you, if you have means, like you have like legit money, you know, why would you give up property? It's only accruing higher value. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you? Uh, and uh, because you, if you can afford to have both, would you keep both? Probably, yeah. I mean, if you could afford it, sure. Yeah, so I think the next big statistic is really the, the taxes coming up this year on how many people file as part-time residents living next less than six months. Is that standard? You have to be in the state at least six months? To be a resident of Massachusetts for tax purposes. Okay. So um, some people, uh, you know, will take part-time resident taxes, but even if you live in Massachusetts, you pay some taxes. So, and there's always, like, I'm like, the tax code's crazy in every state. So, 
uh, you know, residents, you know, that I think, you know, people really should want to hopefully the global look. Um, we'll look at the, the tax records of the last year, this year, the next, probably next three years mm-hmm. to get a sense of the migration of folks based on how they fill out their taxes. All right. We'll wait and see. Uh, you know what I, I want to ask you about, Zach? I know it's something that's um, near and dear to your heart is um, free school lunches. Yeah, um, we worked on free uh, school lunches and I think breakfast last year. That you know, there's a pandemic era thing that we we put into place. Uh, I think lunches will be a continual conversation this year, depending on how budget cycle goes. Uh, you know, obviously, I think it's very important um, that people shouldn't be stigmatized from uh, getting school lunches. And many uh, constituents, including my own, uh, this is one of the more more important meals for kids that are available, depending on uh, socioeconomics and. Given the high inflationary costs and everyone's feeling the pinch, I think free school lunches and free breakfasts are becoming critical for kids and nutrition. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money your family has, it's, it's still very important. And I know that uh, the city of Quincy's nutrition department, you know, you know, has changed. It's not the days when we were young with soggy hot dogs and greasy pizza. Um, much more balanced a better diet. And I know it's not easy because uh, food costs have gone up and it uh, does impact the school system as well. So the state needs to step in and, you know, find a way to do a funding mechanism to, to expand uh, free school lunches and also you know, to the summer program as well, which I'm aware does exist and works with groups like the Germantown Neighbor Association you know, to distribute these the free lunches to local families and, you know, walking distance to the neighborhood center, for example. So, um, Hopefully, we're going to try to figure this out in this year's budget. And my good friend Denise Garlic from Needham, uh, who's also from my class. Yeah, a lot of my people in my class did all right in terms of leadership positions. Um, you know, will you know be charged with working with that, and hopefully, you know, if she can work with the ways means shares uh, to try to figure out how to get the uh, get this to work. Yeah, is there is there a, a cost associated with it right now? Don't know what it is yet. Um, we kind of have to wait to see what education committee and ways, committee, ways and means committee comes up with the analysis and see if we can push it through. Um, again, the uncertainty of the economy, we've talked about this for three straight years, or the uncertainty of the economy, and you know, everything I thought the economy would do did not do what I thought it would do. And it's the total opposite of what I thought was going to happen. Um, and this is kind of part of the big challenge right now. And, you know, every business, every household, every government trying to figure this out, you know, what you need to pay for and you know, what you're earning and how things are matching up. Um, and, you know, I, you know, what you're facing at home is the stuff that's everybody's facing at home as well as you know, every business and every government. So I can't tell you of any certainty how things are going to come out. I'm aware that um, the last month's uh, state revenue numbers weren't quite as robust as we hoped, but I know we're still a few, uh, few months from April. And uh, I know the quarter for December, Christmas sales were not as robust. Uh, when you look at it, Black Friday was not as robust as they all hoped. They expected higher numbers that didn't come through. Uh, and if, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that uh, products uh, and food uh, will go down in price. So eggs have dropped a hair. I'm hoping it drops more uh, because I think it's like 71% inflation on eggs. Uh, but I mean, also retail goods that we collect sales tax on, um, you know, I do hope it drops, but it also reduces our sales tax income. Mm-hmm. Right? And same with the meals tax, you know, I, I would like to have, like everyone else watching, you know, reduce costs on products and services. Uh, but that also means reduced sales tax because it's a proportion of what you pay. Right, right. Um, on that note, let's let folks know how to get hold of you. Sure, I'm still in the same office. Uh, we are moving offices to sales, but I am not moving. 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. We somehow hit the automated system, smash a button, uh, and uh, somehow we'll get a message. Uh, room 42, we are in a return to office mode, um, and we are get to go to meetings and stuff again. Uh, so uh, room 42 is sales, please drop by and say hi. If I'm not there, definitely say hi to my staff. Uh, you can email me at tackey.chan at emmahouse.gov, tacky.chan at emmahouse.gov. Uh, I am getting co-sponsor request emails. That is the flavor of the day. And the state representative Tacky Chan Facebook and tackychan.org. 
uh, is the, uh, my own website, as well as the malegislature.gov is the official website of the state, malegislature.gov. So plenty of ways to get information about talking to me, plenty of ways to try to get a hold of me. Uh, if not myself, you know, you always get a member of my staff. And of course, you know, we, we will, you know, me and Joe, some point we'll be together again soon. <laughs> we, we never really were apart, Jackie. <laughs> but you're welcome anytime. Uh, next time we talk, it'll probably be March. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this month is zipped through. I know it's a short month to begin with, but um, we're zipping through uh, February. Uh, March will be around. The governor's budget is being released next Wednesday. Um, uh, hopefully get a chance to read it before talking to you. Uh, so we'll see if the timing of when we chat will we'll, uh, give me an opportunity to look at it before you ask me questions. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, before you know it, St. Patrick's and uh, April, April Fool's is just around the corner and we'll be deep into the uh, house budget process. And hopefully um, I will be able to uh, have committee uh, schedule ready to go. Again, I have a new set of chair. It takes time to get to know each other and uh, set up a schedule, but I really hate wasting time on public hearings and I'm kind of a go, go, go on this. So, you know, once we can, I hope uh, I can get these hearings started soon, uh, soon as well. I'm still waiting for bills to committee. Bills are still not being referred to committee. We hope to have them sometime the first week of March. We're hoping. Um, but once I got them, the staff is already prepped uh, to prepare a hearing schedule. So, we shall see. Uh, and then, you, you know, uh, just to let you all know, we are not going to be on State Representative Tacky Chan Facebook for public hearings. I'll repeat this again in future meetings. Uh, the state is requiring us to use uh, emulegislature.gov for public hearings through Microsoft Teams. We are migrating off of Zoom. Um, and uh, we will be having hybrid meetings, which I'm still trying to figure out how we're going to do hybrid public hearings um, in an orderly fashion, keyword orderly. Um, and uh, those of you who've been used to watching uh, me on, on Facebook, uh, you know, you gotta have to migrate over to uh, the state website. What allegedly okay. just. But they can still catch us here at QATV, no matter what. Well, I'm sure you guys can rebroadcast some of my better hearings. <laughs> you, you just let us know which ones and we'll be happy to do it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Techie. You take care, Joe.